Hello and welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter, and the topic today is aster leafhoppers, aster yellows, and the phytoplasma that binds them. I have three guests. They are... My name is Bernice Romero, and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Saskatchewan. My supervisor is Sean Prager, and my co-supervisor is Tyler West. My name is Sean Prager. I am an associate professor in the Department of Plant Sciences and an associate member of the Department of Biology at the University of Saskatchewan. Hey there, I'm Tyler West. I'm a research scientist in field crop entomology at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Saskatoon. Aster yellows is a canola disease that can be found here and there every year and flares up to more serious levels once in a while. I was inspired to talk about aster yellows after working on the Canola Digest Science 2022 edition, which will be in farmers' mailboxes and posted online in November. The magazine includes a one-page summary report on a project called Investigating the Role of Plant Hosts in the Outbreaks of the Aster Leafhopper Vectored Aster Yellows. Sean Prager is the lead on the project, but Berenice Romero did a lot of the legwork. Tyler Wist is also closely involved with Aster Leafhopper's work on the prairies. So here we go, into the zany world of phytoplasma, Aster Leafhoppers, and Aster Yellows, and the project's most interesting discovery. We're going to define phytoplasma. Can we start with that? What, what is a phytoplasma? To put it very simply, it's a special type of bacteria that lacks a cell wall and when you look at if you look at the genome if that's what you're interested in and when you compare it to other types of bacteria it's actually fairly reduced meaning that they need to rely on their hosts a lot for for example doing like very simple metabolic activities that's how i would describe them similar to a bacteria but they they aren't bacteria or they, are they in the family of bacteria? If, if... They are bacteria, but they, they do have characteristics that, like, for example, if you think about like a, a very, like the general bacteria, you would be able to um, have them growing in a medium, but with phytoplasmas, you cannot. Even if you supply lots of um, nutrients for them, there is something about their, uh, their genome and all the things that they need to be able to survive that they just kind of do it in like a flask and some like growing medium you need to have like the host so without a cell wall is that why they are more sensitive or whatever the right word is to being Uh. produced in a lab not necessarily. It's more related to all, for example, if you think about all the enzymes that are involved in, let's say, um, um, uh, metabolizing sugars or uh, like uh, amino acids and all those, uh, all those uh, macromolecules, they're a couple that they do not have. So they actually need the ones that are in the host cells and they kind of like take advantage of that. All right. So they rely more on the symbiotic relationship. This is me talking at a very basic level. I think you're getting it there, Jay. 
and this unculturability makes them rather difficult to work with because we need a plant host and then we need the the aster leafhopper vectors as well and we have to keep them both alive to keep the aster yellows phytoplasma going in our colonies yeah good well thanks tyler so let's let's jump to the to the leafhoppers tyler you you've been looking like at you said that jump to the leafhoppers <laughs> hey, hop to the leafhoppers hop, hop to the leafhoppers i got to get my terminology right what are leafhoppers so leafhoppers are they're small little insects they're in the family cicadellidae and uh yeah so what that family sort of means is really small cicadas so if you know what a cicada looks like they look like really small cicadas um i don't think and they're they like make... small like a, a centimeter or we're uh, talking about 2.5 millimeters from nose to the end of their oh, really tail. small yeah i say tail i mean the yeah. hind limbs yeah are they native uh, to the prairies uh, maybe there's maybe there's thousands of species i don't know but uh, are they uh do they live here hundreds of species the one that we're most worried about is the aster leafhopper and that one is native to north america and it has this really interesting seasonal migration where they come from the uh, really southerly latitudes where their populations can keep cycling and then they kind of shoot in a shotgun pattern all the way up through north america and into canada where it is too cold for them to spend the winter a, a 2.5 millimeter aster leafhopper can't can it fly or oh, yeah. <laughs> well i guess it flies but how does it get here so efficiently wind. Well, it flies but it catches yeah it basically wind. catches the wind bus to get up here it's like hey going north i'm gonna hop on that train and away we go now diamondback moth I think also come in on the winds with the aster leafhoppers be coming in on those same wind well, trajectories? That's an amazing question you're asking, Jay, <laughs> because uh, we've been looking at that for the last few years. Correlation is not great. So we think the, uh, the leafhoppers are coming more on a south to north up through the Great Plains, whereas the diamondback moths are flying in on winds from more like California or Mexico, because they can actually travel further, we think, than the aster leafhoppers in the winds. So sometimes they'll show up on the same winds if we get south winds that are kind of coming from different locations. So the way we're looking at winds is looking at this high split trajectory, which basically gives you what a particle of smoke would do if it started in one spot and came all the way up to different places in Saskatchewan. But we can have different winds coming to different parts of the Canadian prairies, even on the same days. So it's been challenging to try to pull those apart. But what we've been doing is we've had uh, pheromone traps for the diamondback moth up at the same locations that we've had yellow sticky cards for the leafhoppers. And sometimes we'll get them during the same week and then we can mm -hmm. trace the winds back. And then a lot of times we don't get them in the same week. So not exactly the same winds are bringing them is is sort of the take-home message from that project well, ultimately we're going to talk about aster yellows uh, which is what canola, canola farmers are interested in but, but just to stick with the insects for a second my sense is that diamondback moth larvae feeding is a bigger issue most years than aster yellows but we can we can talk about that in a sec. I just want to get to the to the numbers. What like do we know how many leafhoppers are arriving 
relative to how many diamondback moth large uh, moths are arriving is are the numbers similar kind of but they're not really like we're comparing apples to oranges definitely there um what we is can there do a correlation can... i guess what i'm getting at is that it seems like there's less aster yellows i mean it comes and goes in waves and we had a lot yes. in 2012 so is that is that relative to the number of the insects or is there no real close correlation between the the severity of aster yellows and the actual number of leaf hoppers? Oh no, there's an extraordinary yeah, it's an Sean, you take this one. Sorry. It's that, that no, is an extraordinarily difficult question to answer. Um Well, if we look at 2012, we had a yeah. ton of leaf hoppers. A ton of leaf hoppers. Right? They were everywhere. Hmm. Yeah. I think I think the what you have to remember is that the leaf hoppers on their own. So so if you have only a leaf hopper, that is leaf hopper without the uh, the phytoplasma, you have them, but we don't get aster yellows, and probably you won't even think very much about them because on their own, oh I don't even know. Depending on what it is, you need extraordinarily large numbers of the leaf hoppers on their own to really be damaging. Um, Unless you're a really small plant, then you can. Get Unless you're a really small plant. That's true, yeah. unless you're a really small plant. Fair enough. Um, but there's absolutely some a relationship between the number of leafhoppers you have and both sort of how much aster yellows you have in a plant and how much aster yellows you have in a field and the transmission of that aster yellows throughout the field. So when you have large numbers of infected leafhoppers, you inevitably will have more aster yellows. Um, but, you know, it's it's not... Uh, sort of like a, a straight one-to-one -one relationship. Okay, we're 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 slowly building this this thread here. Uh, so now we've got the leaf hoppers who are carrying the phytoplasma. H how do they get it in the first place? Are they they're picking it up from down in, in the United States, southern states on on what plants? That's a difficult question too. We don't know for sure. So so Tyler can answer that a little bit. He we have some guesses about um what they would be feeding on and we presume they are picking it up if they were picking it up in the southern places from what they're feeding on or for that matter here if they're feeding on infected things um um but so let's that, get that's the riddle in a way that well, is the riddle so we're trying to answer that question what are these leaf hoppers feeding on so sean and i have a a project in the works may or may not be funded we'll see and we can tell what their last meal was basically before we smashed them up and extracted their DNA. So that is trying to answer that final question. But on the big picture, we can tell what plants these leafhoppers were feeding on before they migrated up into Canada. And we're looking at stable isotopes to do that. So the ratio of, I think it's heavy carbon to not heavy carbon, basically will tell you if they were on a monocot plant like a cereal or if they were on a, a dicot plant like a broadleaf and so we've got two years of data working with dr keith hobson at the university of western ontario who used to be in saskatoon and uh, he can do these stable isotope analyses and he said yeah pretty much every single leafhopper that came into western canada in those two years were feeding on monocot plants so they're probably coming out of cereals then in the uh, upper Great Plains, and then hop, skip, and a jump up into Saskatchewan when they catch those winds. So that was really interesting because 
Aster yellows doesn't do very well in cereal plants. So Aster yellows phytoplasma doesn't replicate very well. It uh, doesn't really give a lot of symptoms to these cereal crops. So, and it's not yeah. really easy for the leafhoppers to pick up the phytoplasma from those plants either. So what we're finding is a lot of these ones that are flying into our provinces are not very infected. And because probably they're coming off these cereal crops and they're not picking up the which, so. which brings us to this this new discovery where I, and, and again i think that the the thinking was that leafhoppers showed up with the phytoplasma and then infected canola but you're, yeah, that's you you found hypothesis. Mm -hmm. yeah so so berenice maybe we'll bring you back in here if this is an appropriate time to get a, an update on this new discovery that that these leafhoppers may actually be picking up the phytoplasma from plants growing on the prairies. Tell me more. Uh, yeah, sure. So from different surveys that Tyler has been doing for the last couple of years, um, he has found many Aceracea plants like uh, dandelion and different types of thistle that tested positive for phytoplasmas. And I believe that when he did the sampling, it was uh, before crop emergence, uh, meaning that if any aster leafhopper showed up at that time, they would be able to like pick it up and eventually move into the crops and infect the crops if that was a susceptible uh, plant species to the infection with phytoplasmas. Because um, another thing that, uh, you might want to keep in mind is that even if you have um, a, an insect that's carrying the phytoplasmas, the plant species that it's going to feed on really matters in terms of whether you're going to be able to transmit that phytoplasma on or not. Like uh, Tyler mentioned, um, some of the cereals are not really good for phytoplasma, but for example, like uh, when we think about like the symptoms, Canola is very susceptible to infection with phytoplasma. So uh, when you have an infected plant, you see it right away. But when you have um, a cereal like wheat or even barley, like the symptoms are fairly similar to other types of stresses, whether that's abiotic stress or even like some other types of diseases. So you might be having an infected plant in your field and you might not even know it. Mm. But the alternative also, or, or, or even if the cereals aren't aren't really affected that much by the phytoplasma, they are a host. So the, the leafhoppers can pick up the the pathogen from from cereals and like you said, from dandelions, from thistles. So there's a number of plants that that are now shown to to be hosts. And then the leafhoppers feed on those plants, pick up the phytoplasma if they didn't have it already go into canola and infect canola. That's the process. Good summary. Berenice, why don't you talk about the uh, preference, the leafhopper preference that uh, you've been publishing on? And then how would I finish it up with talking more about those plants? Yeah, sure. So um, what we did last year, I believe, um, we decided to see whether the so we started by looking into the development and the OV position behavior of leafhoppers basically to see uh, if different crops and non-crops, and I included dandelion and south easel, were good hosts 
And so we put different pairs of leaf hoppers, we gave them some time to reproduce, and then we counted how many eggs there were on the different plants. And cereals were extremely good. Um, some of the weeds that we ended up choosing were also really good. But then canola was like one of the worst options ever. They didn't want to lay eggs on that plant. And um, the adults cannot survive for that long if they are strictly feeding on canola. So, however, that was in the context of giving them one option. And these are polyphagous uh, insects and they move around a lot. So the next step for us was to see whether that same pattern that we had seen uh, was the same if we gave them two options. And here is uh, where I'm gonna talk about the preferences. So we gave the, we exposed the insects to two choices. And uh, we included different crops. We had cereals, we had canola, and then we had dandelion, um, south thistle, fleabane, and a couple others. And the main takeaway from everything is that when you had a crop and a non-crop, uh, the insects prefer to settle on the crop, even if the crop was canola. So in the absence of any other plant species, canola is not a really good host, but if there's something else beside it, it might actually be preferred by leaf hoppers. That seems odd. Do I know. Have, have any theory why? Like why canola is not a good host, you mean? If they have two choices, they will go on canola. But if they have one choice, it seems like they don't really like canola. Well, let's talk about the choice for canola, because if there's a cereal beside that canola, they'll go to the cereal, though, right, Bernice? In two of the combinations that included a cereal and canola, they did prefer the cereal over canola. However, that's when you consider where they were settling on, because the other thing that we did was uh, take plant tissues, and we could, like, stain them and look at the number of eggs that had been laid on those plants. And also, um, there are little marks uh, that are left after leafhoppers attempt to feed on the plant. It doesn't necessarily say that they were feeding on it, but th they are related to feeding, feeding activity. And in some cases, uh, the plant that had been preferred to settle on was also the plant where you saw most of the, the eggs and even like these feeding marks, but there wasn't like a very straightforward relationship in all cases. Um, and I think that this even included canola. Okay. So, the, the, so what, what we want to get to uh, in this podcast is what does this mean for um, for aster yellows, which is the, the ultimate end for, for canola growers, the, the disease itself, knowing that the leaf hoppers are, are, are quite likely picking up the, the pathogen from other plants growing on the prairies. We've sort of known, like we know that they have, the aster yellows phytoplasma has alternate hosts. So lots of older papers say, oh yeah, we found aster yellows in these weeds. And you know, there's a long list of weeds. Um, digging in the literature, uh, the flax, people recommend that uh, you don't have flax near alfalfa or you might get aster yellows in your flax. So flax is another oil seed that's susceptible to that aster yellows phytoplasma. 
pulling all these things out and going back to, I think it was about 2019, when one of your canola council agronomists, Autumn, came to us and said, yeah, we got this, we got like really weird symptoms in, in, these, uh, in this canola field. And so the year before that canola field had been planted to alfalfa and the alfalfa had just been declining really badly and it was kind of yellowish. And of course, you know, alfalfa is nearly impossible to kill. So it was coming up in the canola field. And then these canola plants were getting kind of sub symptoms of aster yellows. So not like full blown aster yellows, but just symptoms that were, that said, you know, it's probably aster yellows. So when we did our molecular tests, sure enough, the, the uh, plants had aster yellows and so did the alfalfa plants. And so and then we started looking more in depth at perennial plants or biennial plants. And so I'll paint a picture for you. Yeah. Here's May, long weekend. Most crops have not even popped out of the ground yet. But this is when the aster yellows, um, or sorry, the aster leafhoppers typically migrate in, which is really interesting because often they show up on my birthday and I get really happy that uh, I've got leafhoppers from my birthday to study. So they show up around the, uh, the long weekend and the only green thing are ditches that are full of brome grass, alfalfa, and these little biennial weeds that the year before in the fall had been little tiny rosettes. And so what we're thinking is happening is that, you know, they're in the cereal crops. These aster leafhoppers are in the cereal crops reproducing. We can find them right up until the first killing frost in any green cereal crops that we've got there. So they're just looking for something to feed on. And you've got things like stinkweed, dandelions, and... Uh, Fleabane can be like a really good one. Right, and these ones, if you look for them in the fall, they're these little green rosettes, and they are green. So you're a leafhopper, you're hungry because someone just harvested the wheat crop that you were in. What are you going to do? You're going to go find the next green thing. Maybe that's alfalfa in the ditch. Maybe it's one of these perennial weeds that then the aster yellow's phytoplasma goes down to the roots and then comes back up again in the spring. So you've just blown in on the May long weekend and the only green thing were those little plants that your predecessors had been feeding on the uh, previous fall. And if your predecessors were infected with aster yellows, now those plants have aster yellow's phytoplasma. So we were finding some of these perennial weeds coming up and they had aster yellow symptoms. We tested them for aster yellows and sure enough, they had aster yellows and we tested them before that spring migration of leafhoppers had happened. So we knew that they had gotten that infection before any of these leafhoppers had shown up. So that's sort of the picture of the migration and these, uh, we're calling them a, a green bridge for aster yellows phytoplasma, a green bridge over our, our white snowy conditions in Western Canada. What would that, what might that mean for management of aster yellows. Are we making any different recommendations or would you make any different recommendations as a result of this discovery? That is always the the big question, right? So what does that mean for producers? Do they need to spray? I would not recommend getting your sprayer into the ditch to spray leaf hoppers. Mm -hmm. I don't think it, so in terms of management, now you need to manage those perennial weeds, basically. Um, watch out for I mean, you can't really watch out for alfalfa. It's everywhere. And we don't recommend spreading alfalfa for the aster leafhoppers. But what we would recommend is knowing what your populations are looking like. So if you do have a sweep net or you're out in your ditches and you can get out there, sweep that brome grass and say, 
hey, I've got aster yellows or I've got a lot of, sorry, I've got aster leaf hoppers. And if I have a lot of aster leaf hoppers, then there's that chance that they'll start moving into the crops. So just keep an eye on them, basically. And, and going and, back to that 2019 example, perhaps if you're planting canola into alfalfa, you yeah. may want to you may want to consider that you the crop could be at higher risk of aster yellows. Yeah, you maybe don't want to follow that crop rotation. Yeah, especially if your crop had been declining for some reason, it could be because you had a big aster yellows infection in in that alfalfa. Now, saying that, I've seen big alfalfa fields, and you know they're not they're not sitting there as these huge repositories of aster yellows phytoplasma. Most of them look really really healthy. So, um, I'm not. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, demonize the alfalfa industry either. Yeah, no. All right, let's close with the, just a bit about aster yellows. I'm, I'm assuming most farmers are, are somewhat familiar with it, but can we talk about the, the the major symptoms as well as maybe some subclinical symptoms, if we can if we can say that. The most obvious and most severe symptom is phyloidy. So it's it's um. This sort of phenomenon where what would be the sort of the flowering parts of the plant um, turn into green parts of the plant, basically. So, so it, it kind of turns the, veg- the the floral parts of the plant into vegetative parts. And then and, and, and to a lesser extent, even when you don't, when you do get seeds and pods, they're they're quite deformed. Um, so, I mean, those yeah, are the, the subclinical bit, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess. So. I know. Like if it's really <laughs> bad aster yellows instead of getting a seed inside the pod, you basically get a little leaf inside the pod. Yeah. But if it's sort of late infection and not a lot of aster yellows, you can get really, really small seeds. We kind of call them like peppery. And so, yeah, they're just, they look like dust inside there. And that's sort of one of the subclinical signs. Hey, I've got a normal pod, but then inside your, your seeds have been destroyed by aster yellows. Sean, do you think aster yellows is causing more yield loss than maybe we realize? Oh, great question. question. That's hmm. a great question. Um, I don't think so, actually. No, no. I think when you, I think when you have it, because the sim, because the yield loss is coming from such a dramatic symptom, you probably know it, right? I mean, it's, it's not, it, it's, it's not as sort of um, sinister as something where you, know, you know, where, where you um, get quality loss, right? It's, it's, it's a lot more binary. I mean, basically. With how if you have a leaf instead of a pod, or if you have no pod, you have no yield, right? And so, I think I think it's very obvious when you get that, as opposed to some other things where you just say get fewer fewer seeds or, or, or lower quality. I think it's I think I think when you're gonna when you're really gonna get yield loss, you're gonna you're gonna be very um, aware that you have deformed plants. Let's wrap up, Bernice. We'll go to you. What 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 do we need to figure out to help farmers manage this disease? What, what's next on on the agenda? Well, a few things that I have going on right now is we have these very cool um, equipment that allows me to look into acid leaf hopper feeding. And basically what I'm trying to see is um, if uh, leaf hoppers fit differently depending on whether they have phytoplasmas or not so that would be the next thing because it would mean that um, if infected leaf hoppers uh, feed for longer or there's for example their salivation is longer while they are feeding from a plant that might be the time 
when the phytoplasma transmission takes place. Or, and that would mean that if they feed for longer, uh, the chances of getting phytoplasma into the plant are longer. But mm. I'm also looking at whether there are any differences uh, among different plant species. So I'm trying to uh, look into basically your question about why canola was a poor host and yet in some cases was preferred and it was also very susceptible to phytoplasmas. I'm just thinking of trying to draw an analogy. So a, a dog with rabies might be more likely to bite you. So it is a leafhopper with carrying phytoplasma more likely to, to feed on canola and infect the crop. Great analogy. <laughs> Good work. Yeah, excellent. Leafhoppers um, foaming at the mouth, eh? <laughs> and then, and then the the other thing is more related to the plant's uh, defense mechanism. So I have different uh, kind of like mutant plants right now that have a certain um, kind of like molecular pathway that's always on or off, and I'm and I'm looking at how that impacts on different uh, responses from the leaf hoppers, because. Um, from a molecular perspective, if you can get a plant that might have one of these uh, molecular pathways on and or off, or maybe like slightly strengthened by something else, you might be able to have uh, a less susceptible host for the phytoplasma down the line. But oh. I'm still working on it. Oh, that's interesting. So for for the first time, we're talking about maybe not for the first time, but but you're you're looking into whether we could perhaps breed canola for resistance to aster yellows or select for ones that are stronger, or, or maybe that might lead to, to a, sort of an RNAi type, type spray or something. It, something like it, that. Yeah, it, so it could be I'm working with Arabidopsis, which is related to canola. And at least for me, I think that I'm looking more into whether the oviposition or the development are reduced rather than what happens to the phytoplasma. I haven't gotten that far. Okay, Sean, what, what about you? It, so, so, well, so first, it, just to clarify, it's important to understand that the symptoms you get in a plant are kind of tr tricky, right? So, in fact, this, is the, this really applies to all disease. Disease symptoms are, are the result of the pathogen and the plant or the pathogen and, and the, the animal interacting. So just like when you get a cold, right? The cold virus isn't necessarily what's actually making you have a, snuff, a, a sniffly nose and a cough, right? That's your sort of immune system responding to the infection. Same thing happens in plants to a certain extent. So, so some of the symptoms we see in a plant are actually the plant doing things on its own that's being um, sort of elicited by the uh, by the phytoplasma. So, so part of what Bernice's uh, work is going to let her do is is understand which things are being activated in the plant, and by knowing that, that will help you understand if some of the symptoms you see maybe are because of the plant's response to being infected rather than um, something that the bacteria is actually doing. So that's why. So it's, it's a very long way to get to something um, breeding wise necessarily, but it may be a little less long if there's ways you could sort of turn down the immune response. So as far as the next next research project, well, Tyler sort of alluded to it, we're, we're waiting and hoping that we, we get funding for um, this project to look at what the leafhoppers are um, feeding on. So we have these fancy molecular sort of tricks we can use to um, 
basically look for the DNA of the chloroplast of the plant that the insects had been feeding on. And so we can take that DNA and we can sort of compare it to the big databases of all plant DNA. And we can see which plants DNA is inside the insect and that will tell us what they have been feeding on for the last couple of meals. And the hope is that we can get it from all over the province and perhaps from all over the, say, the continent or the places where the winds might blow these insects up. Then we'll know what plants specifically they had been feeding on or most commonly feeding on. And that then kind of gets us back to where Tyler was, um, because then we have a much better idea which which plants you really specifically want to be looking at. And then you might be able to do things like, you know, row your head, uh, row, rogue your hedgerows or spray or something like that and sort of reduce your overall risk. Yeah, as if we needed another reason to hate dandelions, hey? That's probably going to be the title of our paper. <laughs> Tyler, what's what's your last word? What's what are you, well, What's next? For me, big picture, it's something I'm working on right now, but it's being severely hampered by flea beetles wiping out my experimental canola crop, um, is what does it mean when you have a lot of leafhoppers and they have different levels of infection? What does it mean for a canola crop? So I'm trying to determine the Aster Yellow's risk index for canola based on the leafhoppers that are migrating up. So 2012, what we found was the there was a lot of leafhoppers and they were infected at a level of about 10%. And we had a lot, a lot of Aster Yellows in the canola crop that year. And so, you know, if we were able to tell early on that, whoa, we have all of these infected leafhoppers and we're at this level, then we might have had a better chance to get in front of all that infection i'm going to go into the lab with this um actually we've got alfalfa planted right now so we're trying to duplicate ditches and then movement into canola and uh, i did not bring any flea beetles inside to wipe out my experiments so fingers crossed that we can get that to work thank you berenice sean and tyler thanks thanks to all three of you that was that was really interesting for me well, you're welcome. Thanks for having us on the show, Jay. For more on Aster Yellows, find it in the diseases section at canolaencyclopedia.ca. For more on this latest study, look for the Canola Digest Science 2022 edition at canoladigest.ca. It will be posted in November. We will also mail the magazine to 40,000 canola farmers across the prairies. Canola Watch is an agronomy service from the Canola Council of Canada with support from the three prairies-based grower organizations, SAS Canola, Alberta Canola, and Manitoba Canola Growers. At the core of Canola Watch is a timely agronomy email with regular updates throughout the growing season on pests, weather, fertilizer management, and other topics. If you are not already subscribed, please sign up at canolawatch.org. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. Thank you very much for listening.